Thank you, Gene. God is good. All the time. You know, folks, that's true when we don't think so. We don't feel like it and the circumstances don't dictate it. God is still good all the time. Amen? Amen. Wow, what a joy it is to be here today. I do bring you greetings from the Baptist State Convention and Milton Hollifield, our Executive Director and Treasurer. I want to thank you all for your giving through the cooperative program. You are a strong giving church. Uh, we just sang about it, uh, Doug led us in that, but uh, you all are a great giving church to missions. And, and by the way, just to remind you, I know you know this, but as you give to the cooperative program, you're, you're supporting missionaries, thousands of them all over the world. You're helping people in North America to plant churches in multiple languages, and you help reach our state. And people like myself, I'm a state missionary. I travel and speak and teach and train people and share with people all over this state. So it's a privilege to be able to do that and to partner together with you all in doing that. Y'all are blessed with a good pastor and a good staff. Uh, in fact, I've really enjoyed getting to know Todd. And uh, I just told him a minute ago, I said, man, I can tell you can really preach. He, he's preaching the announcements. I mean, he, he's, he's ready to go. I appreciate that. Though. He's got a great heart. I forgot that you're a Georgia Tech fan, but I don't think the state fans laughed as much as I laughed while you were saying that because I went to Carolina. I'm a Carolina fan, so. but I do have a son at state, so I'll pull for state when they're not playing Carolina. Amen. I pull for the North Carolina schools in a certain order. Um, Duke is the University of New Jersey at Durham, though. <laughs> anyway, it is a joy to be here. This morning we talked about lifestyle evangelism. Our theme is that life is a mission trip. We're going to continue to talk about that tonight in the evening service. I really hope that you'll come back. Uh, it's going to be an interactive time. I'm going to share and I'm going to teach and I'm going to talk, but I want to give you an opportunity and we'll probably spend at least half the time, if not more than that, uh, dialoguing back. And, and the things I want you to be thinking of is what did you get out of it? What touched you? What, did, what stuck with you? What stuck on you? What stuck in you? What are you going to remember tomorrow? Those are things to keep in mind. And also, uh, you come with your own questions, you know, about circumstances or situations or have you ever seen this or have you ever done that. But also you want to think about Jesus is the greatest, you fill in the blank. Think of ways that you can turn a conversation into a spiritual one, and we will talk about that uh, some more. And if we have time, and you, you read the passage about ambassadorship, and that's one of the things I want to talk about tonight is being soul conscious and being an ambassador. And what does that really mean, uh, being an ambassador for Adamsville as well as an ambassador for Christ? So those are things that we'll touch on tonight, and we've been on this theme of life is a mission trip. Say that with me one more time. Life is a mission trip. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I family, I have five children. My wife, Angela, and I have been married almost 25 years. And um, I'm going to tell you a story about prayer and about praying for your children. Uh, I hope this touches you. I hope this encourages you. Uh, when Dawson, who's now 11, um, when he was about three, almost four years old, because we had a baby, had all five kids, we were trying to have family devotions one night. And I just want everybody to sit down, be quiet, so we could pray. And Dawson was running around and around and around the family room. I mean, just wild and wide open. And I said to my wife, I said, man, he has high testosterone. And one of the girls says, mom, is that a disease? <laughs> and she said, yes. <laughs> That's why you stay away from boys. That was her comment. But in that crazy moment, God gave me a vision for prayer. And I call it vision praying. And I'm so excited y'all are going to Zambia. Um, in that, that prayer time, the, my, the Lord put on my heart to ask my children to pray for five things. And we, have the, we do this, you know, four or five nights a week. I ask them to pray for five things. First of all, ask them to praise and thank the Lord for something. Have an attitude of gratitude. 
Then I ask them to pray for a continent of the world to be reached with the gospel. There's seven of us, seven continents. Then I ask them to pray for missionaries that we know or ministries that we've just read their prayer letter or uh, that we may be aware of. Then I ask them to pray for our church staff. I hope you all pray for your church staff. I go to First Baptist and Garner. We have a large church staff. Cover them in prayer. And then last, I ask them to pray for a neighbor who's lost, somebody in our neighborhood who doesn't know Christ. What I'm trying to do is give them a vision for reaching the whole world, but compassion to share with our neighbors and those right around us who don't know Christ. And, and since that time, you know, God blesses his own stuff. He doesn't bless your stuff or my stuff, but he blesses his own stuff. God's really blessed that. Um, my oldest son's been in Japan and Mexico and Kenya. Um, he may go with me on a trip this summer. Um, Courtney's been in, um, Courtney's the one in the middle. She's a freshman at East Carolina. She's been in um, uh Honduras and Mexico and Greece and Darcy's been in Honduras and the Philippines and both of them were in Greece with IMB this summer. They got almost got stuck in Greece. The country shut down. They got out 30 minutes before the country shut down. Darcy's going to the Ukraine this summer to work with Hungarian gypsies. And my younger kids have been on mission trips around the United States like Vermont and Alaska and places like that. So uh, involve your, your children, involve your parents if you're children. Involve them in missions and uh, have a heart for the world. Don't just think about Goldsboro. Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, reach Goldsboro, Samaria, cross-cultural, which is around you, and Judea, where you live in this state, and then the rest of the world. I liked your guttermost to the uttermost. I like that. But anyway, uh, I just encourage you in that and hope that uh, that will give you an idea. Now, this morning we're going to talk about lostness. And I'm just going to give an introduction. A lot of times we talk about the word lostness, or we say that person's lost. It has a negative connotation. It, it sounds like a pejorative term. It's like you put somebody down. But I want you to think about this. Lost people have value to Jesus. Amen? There are certain things. If you lose a pen or something, you may spend a few minutes looking for that pen, but you're just going to get another one. But if you lose your phone or you lose your car keys or whatever, these jokers have value, and you're going to spend time looking for them. Amen? They're lost, but they have value to you. And lost people have value to Jesus. So just keep that in mind. And this morning, we're going to talk about and answer the question, why should we pray for and share with lost people? Now, let me tell you a funny story and kind of lead us into this. Um, there was this little girl, and she was uh, at the pediatrician. And he was talking to her about Sesame Street and Barney and Dora the Explorer. He's trying to connect with this little girl. She was a shy little girl, so he, <clears throat> he puts a tongue depressor in her mouth. And he says, am I going to find the cookie monster in your mouth? And the little girl says, no, sir. And Looks in her ear and said, am I going to find Big Bird in your ear? And the little girl says, no, sir. And then he puts the stethoscope on her heart. He said, am I going to find Dora the Explorer in your heart? Now, at this question, the little girl pops up and she says, no, sir. Jesus is in my heart. Dora's on my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> little girl had her priorities right, didn't she? And Jesus was in her heart and Dora's where she was. <laughs> but let me ask us a serious question this morning. If God Almighty, who is the great physician... If he were to put his stethoscope on your heart this morning, what's on your heart this morning? I hope Jesus is on your heart, but I hope something else is on your heart. I hope you're concerned about somebody in your family or a friend at school or a friend at work. You're concerned about their soul, about their salvation. In our invitation time this morning, I'm going to invite you to come to this altar and bow down and pray and do business with God on behalf of that person that God's put on your mind. My, my daughter, Courtney, who has the blondest hair, her hair really is that blonde. She gets asked about it all the time, but that's her natural color. Um, she asked me a question when she was six years old. I'll never forget. We were in a restaurant. We'd gotten to know the waitress, gotten to know her name, where she was going to school, you know, what she was majoring in, all the things you do to connect with somebody. And she came and laid down our ticket and picked up some of our plates, and she turned to walk away. And Courtney looked up at me with her blue eyes and said, Daddy, aren't you going to tell her about Jesus? And of course I did. But the questions never left me. 
And I don't see a person now that I don't wonder, how can I tell them about Jesus? Or who's going to tell them about Jesus? And folks, I hope that will be on your heart this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, you are the God of creation. You're the God of restoration. You're the God of redemption. You've redeemed us. You're the God of salvation, the only one who can save us. And Father, I pray right now that you will prepare our hearts to listen to what you're trying to do in our life, that we will open our hearts to you. Father, open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears that we might hear your voice speak into our heart. Father, whatever attitudes that we have that might be barriers, Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus you'd remove them. Help us to understand your attitude is you love us, but you hate our sin because you are a holy God. Father, release us from all the things that hold us back, all the sin that besets us. And Father, transform our lives, that our lives would not be conformed to this world. We would not be conformed to churchianity. But Lord, we would be conformed to biblical Christianity in the image of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today who's never surrendered to Jesus, that today would be the day of surrender, the day of salvation. And Father, for all of us who do know you, I pray that we would be greater burdened as you are for the souls of people. So, Father, speak to us now through your word, through your spirit, through illustration, that we might know you and that we might make you known. Glorify yourself today. Be pleased, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, when we talked about life is a mission trip, we talked about Jesus is the greatest, you fill in the blank. I was doing that exercise with a group of pastors one time of turning a conversation into a spiritual one, and we were using Jesus is the greatest. And somebody said, hey, Marty, what about a phlebotomist? I said, a phlebotomist? I said, isn't that somebody that studies blood? They said, well, actually, somebody draws blood. I said, well, that's easy. Jesus is the greatest phlebotomist of all time. He drew his blood for us on the cross. Amen? Amen. Well, I have a whole lot of children, so I applied for a whole lot of life insurance. And the insurance company sent this guy, his name was also Brian, to interview me and get a blood sample and that type of thing. And so he shows up, and I said, Brian, I said, are you a phlebotomist? He said, yes, I am, in fact. He said, I've been doing this for about 11 years, but nobody's ever said that to me. But, yeah, I'm a phlebotomist. And I said, well, do you know the greatest phlebotomist of all time is? And he said, I've never thought about that. Long story short, I got to explain the gospel to him and tell him that Jesus is the greatest phlebotomist of all time and gave him a Jesus video. Well, fast forward, if some of y'all have ever been to the Baptist building, uh, we're right across the parking lot from the Carytown Center Mall. I tell people we're on the softer side of Sears. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, the Rex Bloodmobile uh, parks out in the Baptist State Convention parking lot. They invited people from the mall, and we signed up to give blood at different times. And so they take five at a time. So there's five phlebotomists taking your blood and five people giving blood. So they send me to the end of the bus. And I could tell this lady was going to be fun. She was kind of spunky. I said, how are you doing? She said, oh, I'm blessed. I said, me too. I'm too blessed to be depressed. Now, we're already having church. And I said to her, I said, are you a phlebotomist? She said, yes, I am. How did you know that? I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you know the greatest phlebotomist of all time is? She said, yes, I do. It's Jesus Christ. I said, wow, how did you know that? And she, I said, that's great. She kind of had a little dance to her. She said, there's four ladies in my church that do what I do. And my preacher preached a sermon on Jesus is the greatest phlebotomist of all time. And, man, she went to preaching right then. You remember I talked about sowing and cultivating, harvesting? I was just going to sow a seed, have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with her. But what I did is I struck a match, and we just had church right there on the bus. I called it the gospel blood bus. Amen? <laughs> Folks, you have divine appointments with people who need to hear the gospel, but then you have divine intersections with people who are already Christians, and you just have church right there. 
The interesting thing about when you have church, other people listen in. Be aware of that because that's a powerful thing. Be sensitive to what you're saying and, and think about what people are hearing because a lot of times you may never speak to someone, but you may share the gospel with them because they're listening to your conversation. So have gospel conversations. Amen? Amen. So why should we pray for and share with lost people? If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-8. through 8. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-8. through 8. Now let me set this up. Paul is writing his last letters to Timothy and Titus. Paul knows that his life is about to come to an end. If your life is about to come to an end, what you write and what you say is going to be of great importance. And you're going to be pretty passionate about it. Paul's writing to young Timothy, his young disciple, young elder, young pastor in the faith. And in chapter 2, he's talking about worship. And he's specifically talking about prayer. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy 2. Verses 1 through 8. Hear God's word. He says, First of all, or foremostly then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Now you could say all people. It uses male language, but it means all people. Desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony born at the proper time. Paul says in verse 7, It was for this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, verse 8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without dissension. May God add His understanding and our obedience to His Word. Now, looking at this passage, it's written in very male language, but verse 8 specifically is talking about men and encourage them to be spiritual leaders. And when you back up to verse 1, he says, first of all, or for mostly then, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made. That's like every kind of prayer. And he uses the word urge. That word is parakaleo. It means to come alongside somebody and exhort them. It's a little bit stronger than just a word of uh, encouragement. It's exhortation. It's cheering them on. It's like, I know you can do it. You can do it. So it's a, it's a passionate word. And what Paul's saying is, first of all, or for mostly... Folks, to put this in the vernacular, what Paul's saying is, I want you to pray hard, and I want you to pray in every way, and I want you to make it a priority. And that's what he's really saying. And then you get down to verse 3, and you see why he's saying that. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Wow. That's the heart of God. Now think about this. God Almighty is sovereign. God does not decree that everybody's going to be saved. He could just say, everybody's going to be saved, and everybody will be saved. He doesn't decree that, but it is His heart's desire for people's salvation. So, folks, if it's God's desire for people's salvation, should that not also be our desire, is to see people come to know Christ? Amen? It should be. That should be a desire of our heart if we are a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And He says that they would um, come to know Christ. And then He says... uh, and, and seek the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. What is a mediator? Well, a mediator is like a lawyer, an advocate, somebody that stands before somebody on your behalf. And folks, Jesus is our lawyer. Jesus is our mediator. 
Jesus is the one that stands before the Father on our behalf to say whether or not we get in. Look at this picture here. you got people coming before Him at judgment. And He said, this one's mine, I died for Him. Come on in and celebrate your inheritance. This one's mine, I died for her. Come on in, we celebrate. But what happens when somebody comes before Him and He says, Whoa, depart from me, I never knew you. Whoa. Folks, that is a tragic reality of eternity without Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back and deal with that. But I want you to be thinking about that person that God's got on your mind. Don't raise your hand, but just nod your head. You know somebody that you're concerned about where they're going to spend eternity. Do you know somebody like that? Just nod your head. If you've got somebody you're concerned about, every one of us does. If you've got a heart that beats, you've got somebody you know or you're concerned about. That's our first big point. But look at verse 6 also. He said, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. What is a ransom? Well, a ransom is simply paying to buy somebody back. We generally think of that as being kidnapped. But in a sense, you and I have been kidnapped by the things of this world. And when Jesus died on the cross, he ransomed himself. His blood is the ransom payment for our sins. So he did that for us on the cross. He paid the price to buy us back. Amen? And so we've been purchased with his own blood, but we've got to respond to that gift. So that's our first big reason why we should pray for and share with lost people. God's Word urges us to do so. Now, secondly, in the Lord's Prayer, which is Matthew 6, which is really the disciples' prayer, which is really a model prayer, Matthew 6, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it goes on. You're familiar with it. Well, I want you to think about that phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How many times do we pray for somebody or our children or our grandchildren and we really don't know how to pray? We just kind of pray, Lord, help them. Lord, bless them. Nothing wrong with that, but Jesus said, pray that thy kingdom would come and thy will would be done in their life. And isn't that what you really want for them? I know when I pray for my children, and I'm going to tell you, having two in college, I thought having teenage daughters would increase your prayer life, but having two in college will even continue to increase your prayer life. Amen? And, uh, and there's some items out there on how to help you to pray scriptural prayers. Because when you pray God's word, you pray God's heart. Amen? And we want to pray the heart of God. But my children, by, by the grace of God, all five of them have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Had the privilege of baptizing them recently, some of them, in the last year. But uh, I'm grateful for that. But I still pray that God would capture their hearts. Because they can't. They can inherit our values, and I hope they do. But um, they cannot inherit our salvation. You can't inherit your, your mother or father or grandparent's salvation. That's a personal thing. And you've got to own your own faith. And that's what I pray for my children is that they would own their own faith. And so one of the ways I pray for them is that, God, your kingdom would come and your will would be done in their life such Lord, that you would capture their heart. And that's my prayer for my children. What is your prayer for your children? What is your prayer for your friends and family? Do you want God to capture their heart? Pray. Lord, I pray your kingdom would come and your will would be done in their life because that's what Jesus said to pray for and that's what he wants us to pray for. So pray for that. Evangelist Sammy Tippett says, when one prays for the will of God and the kingdom of God, he's essence praying for the same thing. He's praying for Jesus to rule and reign in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. And that's what we want to see happen. Amen? So that's the second thing, is Jesus taught us to pray for his kingdom to come into the lives of lost people. Thirdly, Paul modeled praying for lost people. Now, let me qualify some things here. Don't let all this be sterile information. I want you to personalize this, because God's trying to speak to some of us in, in, in a special way today. In Romans 10, 1, Paul really kind of shares his heart. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God is for their salvation. 
Who's he talking about? He's talking about his own people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. But if you want to see how passionate Paul really is, you've got to back up to chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And this is what Paul says in 9.1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit bearing witness. And then he says in verse 2, 9-2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What Paul's saying is, y'all, that his heart is broken over his own people. When's the last time our heart has been broken over somebody? When have we shed a tear? When have we been burdened? Think about that. But then Paul goes a step further in verse 3. And in Romans 9, 3, he says this, I wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen. According to the flesh. First time I read that, Pastor Todd, I've got to thinking, is Paul saying what I think he's saying, to be accursed and to be separated? What Paul's saying is if all of his people could be saved, he would be willing to be separated eternally in a place that the Bible calls hell if everybody could be saved. And I thought, whoa, that's heavy. I began to think about that myself. Would I be willing to do that if, if everybody could be saved? And I thought, I don't ever want to be separated from Christ. Do you ever want to be separated from Christ? No. Do you want your friends or family to be separated from Christ for eternity? No. And I pondered over that word. Of, and then all of a sudden, glory, hallelujah, the good news came to mind. We don't have to do that. Jesus has already done it for us on the cross. Amen. When he cried out, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Folks, for a split time in all of eternity, in all of history, God Almighty turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus took on your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world onto himself, such that his heart literally burst within him. In that moment, Jesus experienced hell for us. So we would not have to if we accept Him and what He's done for us on the cross. Amen? Folks, that's some good news in the middle of some bad news. That's some good news. And, and I think Paul understood that, but Paul's passion was about that. Now, a couple of uh, stories. My grandmother, Ruth, she lived to be 93 years old. She had such an impact on my life. And, and some of you who are senior adults, I want to tell you something. Her greatest impact on my life was from age 70 seven to 93, the last 15 years of her life. How are you going to finish? She did it mostly in overtime and in extra innings because most of us have about four quarters to live. You know, one to 20 is the first quarter and, you know, to, to 40 is your second quarter and 40 to 60 is your third quarter and 60 to 80 is the fourth quarter. You get past 80, you in overtime. Amen? But some of you have been blessed with overtime. But don't ever... Look at that in a bad way. Look at it as a longer time to impact this world for Christ, to, to have an impact on your children, have an impact on your grandchildren. I was never with my grandmother, Ruth, and Diana Johnson. I don't know your last name, Diana, but she's here somewhere. One of my grandmother's best friends was her mother, Irene Johnson. I preached my first revival at Burnell Baptist Church in Four Oaks, North Carolina, 30 years ago when I was 19 years old. And uh, my grandmother, Ruth, her church. But I was never with my grandmother when she did not say to me, Marty, let's pray. And she didn't just pray for sickness or illness. She prayed for people's souls. Now, my grandmother wasn't a talkative lady. She never held an office at church, probably never spoke out loud. But she was a prayer warrior. When we had her funeral at 93 years old, 250-some people came. And it was uh, in Smithfield or just outside of Smithfield. And she grew up on a, a farm in Benson and lived most of her adult life in the Forks area. And um, It's amazing how many people came to this lady in a rural area's funeral because of the impact she'd had, mainly through her prayer life. When she was 86 years old, she gave me a stack of poems and two cards that she wanted me to share at her funeral. 
I said, well, Grandmother, you're in good health. You're still driving. You're not going to die anytime soon. She said, oh, yes, but don't ever pray for me to stay because when that time comes, I'm ready to go. Amen. What about you? Are you ready to go no matter when that time comes? We never know. Her poems, Pastor Todd, were about the cross and the crown. Just about all of them had something to do with that. But she had two cards, and one of her cards was her mission statement in life. How many of y'all have a mission statement? Her mission statement was, I... I pray that I may live a life that will light someone's pathway and they'll see Christ in my life. She lived out her mission statement. Her other statement, and it's the one that goes along with this passage, said this. said, my greatest desire in life is to know that all of my family is saved and living in the ark of safety, knowing Jesus as her Savior and ready to meet Him when that day comes. Isn't that precious? I mean, isn't that what you want for your family and friends and your children, your grandchildren? To be living in the ark of safety, knowing Jesus as her Savior and ready to meet Him when that day comes. That's exactly what we want. That's what my grandmother's heart was. That's what Paul was saying in this passage, and it reminds me of that. Now, another illustration along these lines. I was jogging in my neighborhood one Saturday morning, and one end of our neighborhood is like a cul-de-sac. A retired Navy lady who's moved away, retired Army guy who's come to Christ, and beside him is a retired Air Force guy. His name's Mike. Mike's from the Northeast, and he's working in the Research Triangle Park. And, and Mike and I, uh, he's fairly quiet, but we've talked a lot over the years, but I hadn't seen him in several months at this time. And I was praying that morning and jogging that Saturday morning, and I saw Mike working in his yard, and he kind of came out to the edge of the road. And you could kind of tell he wanted to talk. You can tell when somebody's kind of got something on their heart. And so we chit-chatted for a little bit. We talked about work, talked about military, and... And then I turned it to a spiritual conversation. I said, well, Mike, I said, have you been to St. Mary's Church lately in Garner? Uh, he has a Catholic background. And this is what he said to me. He said, well, Marty, he said, I hadn't been to church as much as I should, but I've been reading the Bible. I said, really? That's interesting. Tell me about that. He said, well, one of the things I've discovered is Jesus' suffering didn't begin with the beating and the crucifixion. It began in the garden. I said, now, Mike, are you talking about the Garden of Gethsemane or are you talking about the Garden of Eden? He said, no, I'm talking about the Garden of Eden, all the way back to Adam and Eve. When they messed up and sinned and got kicked out, he said, I believe the suffering for Christ began then. I said, well, man, that's a great insight. I agree with you. He said, but that's not all. His greatest suffering wasn't even that or the beating or the crucifixion. His greatest suffering was the separation from the Father on the cross. I said, Mike, are you talking about where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, yes, Marty, I read that this morning. I said, Mike, that's incredible insight. There are seminary professors that don't have that kind of insight, amen? And um, I said, tell me something, Mike. How did you come to that kind of insight? I agree with you. That's incredible. His words, y'all. He said, Marty, I'll not explain it to you, but for about a year now, the Holy Spirit has been drawing me to God's Word. And the Holy Spirit has been teaching me God's Word. Wow. Folks, that's why we pray. That's why we pray. It may not be you or I that affects somebody, but the Spirit of God can move in on somebody's life and invade their heart and invade their life and begin to call them and draw them to Himself. That's the most important thing that we can know is to pray for the Holy Spirit to move on somebody's life and call them and draw them to themselves. Amen? As I was going back up the hill that day, I, it was almost like I wasn't even running. It was like I floated back up the hill because God was showing me something. Marty, it's not necessarily what you're doing, but it's what I'm doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I've heard your prayers, and I'm doing something. Man, this past Saturday, this past Saturday morning, I was jogging, praying for my neighbors, praying for Sunday, getting ready for today. It was, it was um, on um, 
Saturday, last Saturday morning, I was actually praying for yes, last Sunday, getting ready for it. And this little boy named Josh, who's 11 years old, was on an electric scooter, and he just started riding with me. I don't talk to Josh a lot. He lives in that same cul-de-sac I was talking about. That's the other house. There's four of them. And his dad doesn't go to church. His mother has a little bit of a church background. But the little boy blew me away. He was walking. He was riding his little electric scooter while I'm jogging along and just engaged me in conversation. And he started telling me that he and his mom were having a Bible study and that his, um, they were doing it every day and that they were praying. And so I said, well, here's something you may want to take a look at. I gave him a little John 3.16 card. It's got a great website called thegoodnews.org, and it drops down about 28 Christian websites. And, man, he just opened up. And I'm jogging, and he's riding on his scooter. And he said, Mr. Marty, he said, we've been praying for my dad every day. And he told me some things about his dad. And he said, he doesn't go to church, and he's not been feeling good lately. And he said, but my mom has got, uh, not only am doing a Bible study, she's put an app on my telephone that pops up a Bible verse every day. So I have a Bible verse every day and a devotion every day on my phone. This is an 11-year-old kid telling me this. But my heart is just filling up because I've been praying for this family for years. And now God revealed a little picture to me that not only is, am I praying for them, they're praying for themselves. And we go to church. And, and the little boy and his mom are praying for his dad every day. Folks, that's why we pray. It's the Spirit of God that moves on your neighbor's life. It moves on your kid's life. When we may not be able to communicate or connect with them, the Spirit of God can. Amen? Paul modeled praying for lost people, but he did it with passion. He did it with tears in his eyes. He did it with an attitude of sacrifice. Let's do the same. Now, conditions of lostness. Don't let this be sterile. You can say, well, I know the Bible says this, but I want you to personalize this in one of two ways. Either you're here today and you're a Christian and you know the Lord Jesus. What we're going to be talking about is your friends or family who don't know Jesus. Perhaps you're here today, though, and you've never really surrendered to Jesus. This is what the Bible says, and we're going to hit this quick, but this is what the Bible says about your conditions without Christ. First of all, it says we're blind. In 2 Corinthians, it says the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The gods, the little gods of this age have blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that may not see the glory of the gospel of Christ, which is the image of God. Folks, without Christ, we are spiritually blind. You perhaps are a Christian. Maybe you have a friend like I do. I've got a neighbor. We agree about uh, politics. We agree about most moral values. But when it comes to spiritual things, he's not a Christian. And I am, and I have a Christian worldview, and he does it. And we see things very differently about that. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you were trying to get them to see things your way and they just couldn't see it your way? Perhaps you have had a teenager. <laughs> and teenagers, perhaps you have parents because sometimes you might be right and your parents might be wrong. It can work both ways. Trying to get people to see it how you do. When we're spiritually blind, we're not going to see spiritual things the way that God would have us to see it. Now, I came home from college uh, one day, and I was all fired up about some social issue. And my pastor, Dr. Hugh Garner, was an educated country preacher, very much like Vance Havner, had these zinger statements, and was a fun man. He taught at Fruitland Bible Institute and loved Jesus. And I came home one day, and I said, Dr. Garner, tell me something. Why don't you preach much on social issues? When his grandfatherly way put his hand on my shoulder and said, well, son... Until they get Jesus right, they're not going to get their social issues right. So I'm just going to preach Jesus till they get Jesus right. Amen? And folks, that's what we got to do. We got to make sure we get Jesus right. Not worrying about all the social issues. We got to get Jesus right and then stand up for him. Amen? Amen. So without Christ, we're blind. Second thing we're bound. If you've got your Bibles, look in 2 Timothy, um, 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Paul now is talking to Timothy 
about being a soldier of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, he's talking about being a servant soldier. We pick it up in verse 25. He says this, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Wow, this is really loaded. Notice it says, with gentleness, or with humility, or with meekness. All those words can be translated in there. Confronting or correcting those who are in opposition. See, folks, it makes the assumption that you and I are going to engage people. We're going to engage them with the truth. We're going to engage them with the gospel. But it says with gentleness, with meekness, with humility, it says we will engage them. We will confront them. And then it says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. See, folks, you and I do not necessarily bring somebody to repentance. If you and I can talk somebody into something, then somebody else can talk them out of it. Amen? But when the Spirit of God changes them and brings transformation, brings true repentance, there's a life change. See, the responsibility is up to us to confront them, to share with them, to talk to them, to engage them. The responsibility is on God to save them. Amen? It says with gentleness. You know, you don't want to get somebody in a headlock and tell them we're going to go if they don't straighten out. That's not the way to win friends and influence enemies. We know that. We don't want it to be that you and I are the confrontation. We want to be the conversation. But it is the gospel that is the confrontation. So as you engage them and you befriend them and as you talk with them and as you engage them in conversation, you don't want that to be a confrontation. Let the gospel itself be the confrontation. Amen? You win them as a friend. You want to be winsome so that you, in fact, may win some. Amen? But see, it's up to us to share. It's up to God to save them. Then he goes on and he says... um, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Now, folks, this concept of coming to their senses is the word metanoia. It's literally the word we use for repentance, but it means coming to our right thinking, coming to our right mind. You know, when we use that illustration of repentance, we often say we're, we're going away from God and we're going to turn and come back to God. Yes, that's a physical turn, but that word of coming to the right senses is literally a change of mind. They realize my thinking is stinking and I'm going this way and I have a change of mind and I surrender my mind and my thoughts to God and He captures my mind, and then we're coming back to Him. So the repentance is not just a physical turning around. It's a changing of our thinking, a changing of our mind. That's what metanoia means. It means to change how you're thinking. And then it says, an escape from the snare of the devil. How many of y'all like to hunt and fish? This is good hunting and fishing language right here. That word snare is like a trap. It's almost like you stepped into a bear trap, and you can't get out of it. Somebody else has to come and push that lever and open that trap and allow you to escape. You're ensnared by Satan. You're held captive by him to do his will. And folks, when we're praying for somebody's salvation, we are now engaged in a spiritual battle because we're praying for them to be set free, to be released from that hold in their life. And so many times in churches, we fight the wrong battles. We argue over colors and cushions and carpets and curtains and all kinds of personal preference stuff. Folks, that's the wrong battle. But when we start praying for lost people and we start sharing our faith, we've now engaged engaged in a battle, but it's the right battle. It's an eternal battle. Amen? Make sure you're always fighting the right battle. That's that's session four is spiritual warfare. We probably won't get to that tonight, but uh, nonetheless, pray for them to be set free. Pray for their eyes to be open. Pray for them to be set free, to be escaped from that snare. Now, condemned. Look at John 3.18. You know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. John 3.17 says, For God didn't send His Son into the world to judge or to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Then you get to verse 18. Folks, God doesn't even have to condemn us. We don't have to condemn one another. We're already condemned. 
We're condemned by our own sin. We're condemned by our own lack of belief. But it says in John 3.18, He who believes is not condemned or not judged. But he who does not believe is condemned already because of his unbelief. So these are three of our conditions. We're blind. We're bound. We're condemned. And now look at this one. We are trying to get it to go. There we go. We are under God's wrath. We are destined for hell. Now, folks, you and I don't like this topic. If we were writing the Bible, we wouldn't put that in there. But we didn't write the Bible. The interesting thing is Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. The good news is he came to do something about it. Amen? And it says in John 3, 36, He who believes in the only begotten Son of God has eternal life. But he who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. Now, folks, what is the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God is a holy, perfect God's hatred and unacceptance towards our sin. That's the wrath of God. He's going to come down on that hard. That's, that's His wrath. He hates sin. Now, let's talk about this topic of hell for just a minute. I really believe that we should preach and teach and talk about heaven with joy in our hearts, but we should preach and teach and talk about hell with tears in our eyes. It's not a joke. It's not a Halloween idea. It's not some construct of man. It is the reality of eternity without Christ. Amen? And folks, we need to be sensitive to that. We need to think about that and, and be concerned about that because that's an eternity separated from Christ. Now, I want to raise a question and try to answer it. If God is a loving God, and God is a loving God, why does there have to even be a hell? Why does there have to be an eternal separation from God? Well, folks, we sang about it this morning. It's the holiness of God. God Almighty is holy, holy, holy. The angels in antifical response chant back and forth in the heavens. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. Folks, they're chanting the holiness of God. It's an incredible thing. Moses even said to him, Lord, can I see your face? And basically said to Moses, you can't see me and live, but you can hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you can be sunburned by my afterglory. Now, that's not what it says, but that's exactly what it means. Amen. Moses was burned by the glory of God. That's why God said, hide your face from me and I'll pass by. And see, Moses was burned by the backside of the glory of God. See, folks, we've gotten so far away from this in our culture. We have churchianity and not Christianity. We've gotten away from the holiness of God. We've got this idea that, that God's our buddy and we can give him a noogie or something, you know. Don't get me wrong. He is Abba Father. He's like a loving father, a loving grandfather. We can sit in his lap and talk to him and tell him every intimate thought that he already knows. He loves us. But God is not our buddy. God is other than us. God is creator. We're his creation. We're expendable for his sake. Many of you have been in the military. You understand this, that you have a mission to carry out. No matter what happens to you, you carry out that mission. Well, for us as Christians, we're on a mission for God, and we're expendable for the sake of the kingdom because it's for his purpose and for his glory. It's for his kingdom. So think about this. In the holiness of God, you've got two aspects of God. One, you've got the justice of God. He's just and he's perfect. And because of that, he can't allow anything unholy or unrighteous or sinful to come into his presence and exist. That's the justice of God. But on the other hand, you've got the unconditional love of God. God loves us unconditionally. He loves us no matter what. He loves people right here in Wayne County that will die today or to die tomorrow and never know about the love of Jesus. Folks, that's our mission is to tell them about his love. Amen? And because he loves, now watch this, because he loves us, he sent Jesus to cover our unrighteousness, to cover our sin, to cover our shame, to cover our unholiness. 
to cover our humanity. So now when you go back to my illustration earlier, and people were coming before Jesus at judgment, he goes, this one's mine, I died for him. Come on into your inheritance. That person is covered by the blood, the righteousness, the, the, the hope of Jesus. Because we have no righteousness of our own. Come on in. The next one. This one's mine. I die for her. Come on into your, your inheritance. But then somebody comes before him and he goes, Whoa, depart from me. I never knew you. Folks, it says in Matthew 7, 21 and following, that person says, But Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? And didn't we do miracles in your name? He said, Depart from me. I never knew you. Folks, that's a tragic reality. But the, the thing to think about is that said to the church. That's a church person he's saying that to. That's not just an everyday guy on the street. That's somebody in church. That's somebody in the name of Jesus been doing stuff. But they didn't know him. And see, folks, it is possible to serve the Lord. It's possible to serve the church. And it's possible to do things in the name of Jesus and never know him. Why is that? It's because we've never surrendered our life to him. We're doing it for the church or we're doing it for ourselves, but we're really not surrendered to Jesus. So be thinking about that. And that's a, a heavy thing. Now, think about lostness. Somebody that's never known about him, never professed him. It's the same thing. Depart from me. I never knew you. Folks, that's our family. That's our friends. That's our children, perhaps, or our grandchildren, or neighbors, or friends at school, or work. And we don't want that to happen to anyone. That's why, in a loving way, we want to pray for them and share with them and tell them the truth. Amen? Amen? I hope. Now, I want to tell you a funny story. Same topic. I want to tell you it's a humorous story because I want to give you permission to laugh. My wife, for her 40th birthday, decided she wants to go snow skiing. I said, honey, are you serious? She said, yeah, it's Retro Wednesdays at Beach Mountain. It's only $25 for lift ticket and skis on Wednesdays. I said, $25? I said, honey, that sounds like our copay on our insurance. We're going to get hurt. <laughs> she said, we'll be all right. We'll get somebody to keep the tribe, and we'll go up, and it'll work out just fine. Well, sure enough, we went up late on a Tuesday night, snowed beautifully. The next morning, clear sky. Cold day, 27 degrees, but it wasn't windy. Just a perfect day. And I slip and fall on the shuttle, getting ready to go up to the ski slope. And this guy from New Jersey looks down at me and says, Hey, buddy, I hope that's not an indication of your day. I'm looking at him thinking the exact same thing. <clears throat> I hope not. I only failed one more time, and that was getting back on the shuttle, and everything was all good. But a lot of opportunities to share. But the last run of the afternoon, 4.30 run, you know, they close it out to get ready for evening ski. And my wife said, hey, I don't want to go to the top. I'm going to ski the green slope. I'll meet you back in the lodge. And I was going to get on the, the, the big quad lift and go to the top one more time. And so I get on, and I'm coming to get on with these three dudes. Now, they, they called me dude. They called each other dude. They said dude every third word. This is my dude story. And these guys could have starred in that movie, Dude, Where's My Car? I mean, they didn't have on coats. They had on the long T-shirts all the way down. They had the big old floppy long toboggans. And here I am. I'm the 40-something-year-old guy with the big old honking skis and big old honking ski poles. And I know i got to look funny because they're laughing like crazy, but surely I'm not that goofy. These guys are all little trick skis. But you got to picture this. I'm dude number one, dude number two, dude number three, and dude number four. I mean, we're all together. But right when this lift's moving forward, simultaneously, all three of these guys are plowing up a cannonball-sized snowballs. This is a boys will be boys at its finest. I start laughing now. They've been doing this all day long, and they're laughing so hard they can't even talk. So I said, hey, guys, in just a minute, my wife's going to come out from behind those green trees. She's got curly blonde hair. You can't miss her. They were ready. <laughs> well, she, <laughs> she, she cuts and goes another direction out of range, and they start yelling at her, woo, go, girl. My wife doesn't like a lot of attention. She kind of looks and waves at me like, what is going on? And they're hollering and yelling. Anyway, they selectively dropped their ordinances. They didn't even hit anybody, but it was fun just laughing with them, watching them try. So we're about halfway up the slope, and I had this little card that had Michelangelo artwork on one side and the cross on the other. I said, hey, guys, let me test your art history. 
they're all Appalachian students. They're all from the Georgia area. They're all skipping school, I guess, for Retro Wednesdays. But anyway, I said, let me test your art history. So I slid it down, and one of them looked at it and said, some dude painted that some church in Italy, right? I said, do you remember his name? And he said, the Leonardo da Vinci dude. I said, well, actually, it's the Michelangelo dude. And that church you're talking about is called the Sistine Chapel. It's in the Vatican in Rome. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I said, well, if you remember the picture, Michelangelo painted a picture of God kind of in the heavens and the clouds reaching down to Adam, who's in the garden. And, and uh, it's called the creation of man. You've got the hand of God and the hand of Adam. I said, but if you remember what happened with Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, they messed up, they got kicked out of the garden. That's the disconnect with God. But if you flip it over, it's got the cross, and the cross is the bridge back to God. It's the way that he gave us access to him is through the cross of Christ. About that time that I said that, you remember I'm dude number one. Dude number four leans out, and he goes really loud. He goes, hey, dude, by the way, I'm a Christian, but these dudes, they're going straight to hell. I mean, straight to hell. And he just lit into them, and it was very abrupt, and it was very funny. And I thought, man, this guy's crazy, or either he thinks I'm crazy or he's just yanking my chain. I didn't know what to think. It was very abrupt. So we're laughing. I mean, we all bust out laughing. A few minutes later, he goes, man, it's 27 degrees, and they're just cooling off before they go straight to hell. And he lit right back into them, and we laughed again. And after a few minutes, when everybody calmed down a little bit, I said, guys, I know we're laughing at what the dude said, but honestly, it's really not funny. I said, it's really what the Bible says about a person who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And about this time, he chimes back in. He goes, I know it, man. I know it. That's what I've been trying to tell him. That's what I've been trying to tell him. So we get off at the top of the mountain, and they're getting ready to go down the Black Diamond. I am way too old for that. I'm going down the long blue trail. But here's what the guy says to me. He says, thank you for preaching to my buds. I've been preaching to them too. I said, oh, man, I could tell you're preaching to them. But I realized he wasn't kidding. He was being funny, but he was serious. And, folks, that raises a question for you and I. Do you really care enough about your friends, your cousins, your family members, maybe your children, your grandchildren, to share the love of Jesus with them? That's what he wants us to do. A couple more things real quick. The Bible says, without him we're helpless. In John six forty four, Jesus is speaking and he said, No one comes to me unless the Father draws them to me. That's why we got to pray that the Spirit of God would call and draw people. And if you've got your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to hit this real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, that last comment there. Ephesians chapter 2. I call this the Clint Eastwood passage of the Bible. It's got the good, the bad, and the ugly all in this one passage. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reminds us, he says this in verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead, spiritually dead, in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, folks, I... There's a hip-hop group, a rock group called Naughty by Nature. I don't know if they got it from the Bible, but they got it right. We are naughty by nature. You don't have to teach people how to sin. We have to teach people how not to sin. Amen? Anyway, that reminds us of who we are. See, that's the bad news. That's who we are without Christ and before Christ. But the good news starts in verse 4 when it says, but God. Anytime you're reading along in the Bible and it tells you how bad something is, when God shows up, it's a game changer. Amen? But God, I love this, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he has made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And verse 7 says it's for a reason. In order that in the ages to come that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Then verse 8, 9, and 10 you're familiar with. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of our works lest anyone should boast. 
Then one of my favorite verses, verse 10. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is a beautiful word. In Greek, it's the word poema. It's the word poem with an A on the end of it. What that means is that we're God's crafted work of art. We're not an afterthought or a second thought or a second hand. We are God's crafted work of art, each of us individually. And he's prepared things beforehand, perhaps even before we were born, he tells uh, Jeremiah, that, that he has prepared for us to do. We don't do the works in order to gain the relationship with God. We do the works because we have a relationship with God. Amen? Think, think about this. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know how I can do this or whatever. What is it that you love to do? Are you into gardening? Are you into golf? Are you into computers or crochet or building stuff? I mean, whatever it is you're into, I'm into sports. And so somewhere every year, somewhere in the world, I go on a mission trip. Somewhere in North Carolina, usually through Deep Impact, I I do some type of basketball camp or sports camp. In fact, I'm planning to go with your association on a trip to St. Lucia uh, to do basketball camps. And folks, we've reached lots of people with the gospel through sports. So whatever it is you love to do, figure out how to do it and do it for Jesus. Amen? I mean, God created you with, with a passion and with abilities that not everybody has are different. Just do whatever it is you do. Take Moses, for example. Moses spent 40 years in the court of Egypt learning to be a somebody. Then he spent 40 years in the desert learning to be a nobody. Then he spent 40 years trying to teach nobodies how to be somebodies. That's kind of a summary of his 120, 120 years. Well, while Moses was in the desert, God appeared to him and said, Hey, Moses, I am. I'm God. you got a great banner for it. I'm God. And he said to Moses, he said, Moses, this is what I want you to do. He said, I want you to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians. And Moses did like we did. He started in with his excuses. I'm not your man. I don't know how to do that. Blah, blah, blah. And and God's like, basically, Moses, shut up. I know all that. What's that in your hand? He said, it's it's his shepherd's crook. He said, well, throw it down. He throws it down. Woo, turns into a snake. That would take more faith from me now. He says, pick it back up. And he picks it up, and it turns back into his staff. He says, Moses, I'm going to use what you already have in your hand to accomplish my mission. And folks, that's a message to you and I. We don't have to be somebody else or do something else or have a different personality or different resources. God didn't call you to be uh, Todd or Doug or Marty or Billy Graham. He called you to be who you are with your abilities, with your skills, with your interests, with your passion, with your personality, with your resources to fulfill what it is He's called to do because we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Last verse brings it all together, verse 12, Ephesians 2.12. It says this, Remember that you were at a time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Folks, that's our condition. Without God, without Christ, we're blind, we're bound, we're condemned, we are destined for hell, we're helpless, we're hopeless, and we're spiritually dead. Now, folks, we're in the lost and found business. So we begin to land this plane. We're in the lost and found business. God's called us to engage our culture, to love them, to pray for them, to share with them, to tell them the truth about eternity. Pat Kilby shared a story with me one time. I know y'all know him. He's a dear friend of mine. We grew up at rival high schools and been friends for a long, long time. Pat was in a Walmart one time, and he's watching this little boy playing in a toy department. A little about six-year-old boy. And he was pulling down toys, just riding around, having a good old time. And all of a sudden, he realized he was tired of playing. He started looking for his mom. He looks down one aisle, doesn't see his mom, starts screaming, Mama, 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 where are you? Looks down the other aisle, and now he's screaming, Mama, Mama, where are you? Pat said, when I got in my car and began to drive away, he said, Marty, he said, it reminded me of our culture. There's people all around us. They're just playing in the toy department of life until they realize they're lost. And then they start crying out or screaming out for somebody to save them. 
And folks, you and I, we got people all around us. They're not screaming out loud like the little boy in Walmart, but they're screaming out loud in their heart. They're desperate for somebody to tell them the truth, for somebody to give them hope. Many people are just waiting for somebody to tell them about Jesus, and that's you and I. And in our conversations and in our interactions, we want to talk to them about Jesus. Make it a conversation. I shared that illustration at a prayer conference one day, and a lady literally ran up to me at the end of the conference and said to me, Marty, I saw the reverse of your story. She said, I saw a little girl, who, her, her little mom who lost her little girl in Kmart, and she was going through screaming for her little girl. And folks, that's a desperate feeling. Y'all know this if you have little children. You lose your child in our culture now in a big place, that's a desperate feeling. We were at a prayer conference one time in Lost Dawson, and I was waiting for my family to come to the, the dinner meeting before we had the prayer conference, and we were in Conover, and, and I called and said, where are y'all? I said, Dad, you've got to pray. We can't find Dawson. He disappeared. I mean, that's right off I-40. That was a desperate feeling. Forty-five minutes later, they find him, but he'd gotten on the elevator, gotten off on the top. It kind of reminded me of your son wandering around today, just walking around. He got off the elevator, and they found him, but that's a desperate feeling. Now, this lady was going through Kmart, and the lady observed this, and she said it was beautiful. She said the mom was crying, and she was calling out to her little girl, about eight or nine years old, named Susie. And she was saying, Susie, where are you? Susie, where are you? And she said it was beautiful. The lady came around the corner. The little girl came around the corner. The little girl was crying. The mom was crying. And the little girl ran to her mom and jumped up in her arms. And the, little, the mom grabbed her up in her arms and held her in her arms and said, Oh, Susie, I'm so glad I found you. I'm so glad I found you. Folks, that's a picture of God. That's a picture of God. The Bible says that all of heaven rejoices when that one lost sheep is found. Amen? That's a picture of God, and we're in the lost and found business. You've got somebody you're concerned about today. You've got somebody you're praying for, and I'm going to invite you in just a moment to come to this altar, and, and we're going to have music, just instrumentally initially, and then eventually we'll sing. But while the instrumental music's playing, I just want you to come and do business with God, with that person God's put on your heart. And I conclude with this story, and Todd, you're a good guy, but I'm going to make you a, I'm a bad guy for just a minute. Some of y'all remember this story. Wedgwood Baptist Church. There's a book called Massacre at Wedgwood. It happened in September of 99 or 2000. I can't remember the exact year, but a gunman. It was the National See You at the Pole Wednesday. And they were having a youth rally at Wedgwood Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. Five or six hundred students. A gunman goes in that night and he fires 68 bullets into a crowd of people. By the mercy of God, he only hits 14. Of the 14 he hits, he kills seven. Of the seven he kills, all of them were strong Christians. Two of them were adults, neither had children. And one of them was a lady named Mary Brown. And CNN News decided they would cover her funeral and broadcast it all over the world. They found out that she had some family members working in Saudi Arabia, so they even broadcast it in Saudi Arabia, where it's against the law to share the gospel in public. But they shared testimonies. They shared the gospel. They gave an invitation. Just in summary, God used this tragedy all over the world in incredible ways. But there's one story that captured my heart. Young man named Jeremy, 15 years old, stands face to face with the gunman when he's reloading his gun. And he looks at him and he says, Sir, if you shoot me, if you kill me, I, I know where I'm going when I die. Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, and I'm going to be with him. But, sir, what about you? Do you know about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Where are you going to be when you die? And that gunman held his gun on Jeremy for just a moment. And then he took his own life. But folks, think about that. To stand face to face with death and without hesitation, without reservation, know exactly where you're going to spend eternity and have no doubt about it. Yet, have the presence of mind and compassion of heart, if you will, to turn and care about your would-be killer, your enemy, to care about their very soul. Folks, that's exactly what God has called us to. To know that we know that we know without a doubt where we're going to spend eternity. Yet have compassion for the eternities of those around us. Amen? That's exactly what God's called us to. Let's join our hearts in prayer.
Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your house with your people. Father, I know that you're speaking to some of us now in profound ways. Father, there's some people here that need to surrender their life fresh to you. They know you, but they need to be fresh with you. They just need to surrender to you in a fresh way and ask you to take over their life and take the rest of their life. Father, there's some people here today that may have never asked Jesus to be their Lord and their Savior. And and they realize today they've never really surrendered. They know about you, but they've not surrendered. Lord, I pray they'll understand these simple steps, that you love them, they're a sinner, you died for them, but they need to respond, they need to pray and ask you to come into their heart to forgive them and they surrender their life to you. Father, there's somebody here today, I know, and they're hearing of my voice that needs to do that even now. And Father, all of us have somebody on our heart that we're praying for, that we're concerned about, we're concerned about their soul. Father, I pray that we will pour out of these pews and pour down to this altar and, and, and pray that you, the Almighty God, will move upon the hearts and lives of these that are on our hearts this morning. So, Father, we commit this time to you. Have your way in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please stand. The altar's open, and uh, instrumentals are playing. In a moment, Doug will lead us. Pastor Todd's down front. You respond as the Lord calls you right now. You come.